0: The most important thing is to make sure the economics are there. All the other parameters are there. The reason why small mobile markets are attractive, it is because it's not as competitive. That drives the prices lower and you are able to get a more attractive deal. And getting the right deal is the most important thing.
1: What's going on guys? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. Today, our guest is Charlotte Dunford, from Johns Creek Capital. And today we're talking about small to mid midsize mobile home park investing. She's done 24 of these deals in a relatively short amount of time. And she tells us about her background, how she transitioned from single family investing quickly into mobile home park investing and the types of deals they go after, how they do these deals and, and getting the money, how they add value, what they look for, a lot of great stuff about the small to mid midsize mobile home market, which does not get as much attention as the large mobile home park market. And we're gonna talk about why she goes for the small to mid-sized mobile home park. So a lot of great stuff in here with this one. If you're interested in mobile home park investing, you're gonna learn a lot in this interview. I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor, and I help busy people passively invest in commercial real estate, specifically in apartment building and self-storage syndications. If you're interested in learning more and potentially investing with us on a future deal, Just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form, and schedule a call with me. I will look forward to speaking with you then. If you're an Apple Podcast user and you enjoy the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review. I appreciate that so much, you guys. That helps other people learn about the show. And I'm always honest, I say this every time, That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you are engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street Casino along with us. No matter what podcast app you use, if you haven't done so yet and you enjoy the show, do take a moment and look us up. Hit the subscribe button. That way you'll get every new episode every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. You can catch us here. That's when we're helping you escape the Wall Street Casino. Once again, our guest today is Charlotte Dunford from John's Creek Capital. Without any further ado, here we go. Charlotte, thank you for joining us today.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Been a great conversation so far for our listeners out there who don't know about you and your business. Can you tell us a bit about yourself and what you do?
0: Yeah, definitely. My name is Charlotte Dunford. I am the partner at Johns Creek Capital, which is a private equity firm that focuses on mobile home park investments. We mostly do syndications. Uh, that focuses on value-add mobile home parks. Right now in our portfolio, since we started in 2020, we have 24 mobile home parks across uh, 10 different states. We have mostly uh, focused on uh, uh, the Southeast and the Midwest with some parks here and there in the Northeast and one in the West. We have $4.7 million in investor subscription. And our goal for 2022 is to grow our portfolio as we are already kind of doing that by getting uh, stuff under contract with two right now and more to come.
1: Nice, great. So you have a, a very interesting story personally, and then also uh, getting started as a mobile home park investor. And you know, I'd like to dig into why you picked mobile home parks. I mean, the, the company is relatively new, but you've done a, a number of deals so far and you know you kicked it off, uh, at least growing your business with mobile home parks. But as I understand it, that wasn't your, your start in investing. So let's back up and learn about how you got started as a real estate investor and then fast forward to you know, why you picked mobile home parks.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think for me, um, back when I Uh, was a child. Um, I came from China as an immigrant. I came to the States when I was 16. So for me, real estate has always been a, a passion of mine for two reasons under the communist regime that i was brought up under um I, we were not allowed to own properties as personal properties we were only allowed to uh, lease it from the government for 70 years so the idea of owning properties has always been really interesting to me and also the family values of the, the culture where i came from also made owning a home home ownership in general a really great. Uh, idea to me. So combine those factors together, landing in the United States, I found that in this new land, I had new opportunities. So that's what led to real estate in general. So right after college, I took a job as a business analyst. Um, and uh, using my salary, I was able to qualify for the first loan to buy a single family home the South Atlanta here. And then that led to the second deal, which is another using my salary to qualify for another loan for a duplex. And after that, I felt, you know, using my salary alone, wasn't enough to become the entrepreneur I want to be and wasn't enough to fulfill my vision to provide um, you know, housing to good, hardworking Americans. Um, but I, So I wanted to take the jump to quit the job and became a full-time investor. Um, as far as how I found mobile home parks in general, I've always been a big believer in investing and doing things that most people are not doing. That's because it's escaping competition. My favorite book of all time called From Zero to One by Peter Thiel. He is the co-founder of PayPal and he loves the idea. And that's what his book talks about is the idea of escaping competition by creating a monopoly. And I really had to go after the blue ocean strategy where there there has well, I had to find a space where it was not so heated like multifamily or single family. So I found mobile home parks. So that's why this was super attractive to me. And as far as where we are now, small to medium level mobile home parks is even more attractive because that's a niche within the niche.
1: Yeah, so that's interesting, the, the small to medium mobile home park. The large mobile home parks get a, a lot more attention, especially from Bigger money, even more. You know, other syndicators tend to focus on the bigger stuff. How do you how do you make a, a small to mid sized mobile home park work as an investment, considering the the fixed costs of you know doing a syndication deal?
0: Exactly, that's a great question. So, for a small mobile home park, the fixed costs are are there, right? So, real estate taxes, certain insurance that is higher. But we want to make sure is that the economics would have to be extremely extremely uh, attractive at the beginning that meaning that if you were to get a big mobile home park for a 5% cap rate for a small mobile home park you would have to get a 8 to 10% cap rate and that that has been the cap cap rate, cap rate we have been getting since we started so getting in at an extremely uh, appealing cap rate uh puts us at a pretty good um uh, space as far as uh, because when you buy something low you'll be able to sell high. buy low sell highs as easy as that and something else we really want to be careful with smaller mobile home parks is from experience we know that accidents happen and for a bigger park you might have enough cash flow to cover the expense of, of that month or whatever let's say there's a water pipe frozen break, or there is electric pole falling on a house. Uh, for smaller parks, we, we definitely need a higher reserve account that would um, cover expenses like this. But after all, the most important thing is to make sure the economics are there. All the other parameters are there. The reason why small mobile home markets are attractive, it is because it's not as competitive. That drives the prices lower and you are able to get a more attractive deal. And getting the right deal is the most important thing. And that's how we make it work is through, you know, buying, acquire at extremely attractive rates and also, you know, doing the right value add and drive the price higher because the market is moving higher, and we do add value to the parks.
1: Mm, Okay, okay. So I would imagine in the small to mid-sized mobile home park space, there are a lot more mom and pop owners that probably haven't really kept up with their books, and you know have very, say, informal business systems, if you can even really call them systems. Would you agree with that? And and if so, how do you deal with that?
0: right so that's a great point um i think there are a lot of mom and pop even for bigger parks there are a lot of mom and pop owners uh, for this industry in general mom and pop pops are where the opportunities are you know once you they turn over to the big institutions you don't have a lot of opportunities anymore uh, a lot of times and um so the, the 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 way we do it is that you know surprisingly mom and pops actually keep their records pretty well and if they they just can't produce the books then we tend to be a little bit wary of uh wary of of what 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 kind of the income is because they have nothing to prove especially in our case with syndications um, we are responsible for our investors money we want to be good steward for our investors money and we do, do have a fiduciary duty for their money that's why it's important to make sure the income is there to, to, because if, it's, if the income is not there, they can't prove that, and it's a debt deal. So I would say most mom and pops actually keep their book to some extent, and you do want to dig, dig, dig deeper during due diligence to make sure that the park is sound, income is there, and there are no problems there.
1: Yeah. So if they so if they have very uh, poorly kept books, would you be more likely to just walk away or to try to kind of aggressively? negotiate and at least get like attractive pricing or are you just going to say no i'm moving on to the next one no matter the price
0: well it depends on how poorly the books are, are kept mm-hmm. if there are no record there is no income whatsoever and there is so much more to due diligence to just you know if there's a book or there's not a book you can tell a lot from talking to the seller what the situation is how motivated they are are they do they sound like they are You know, lying to you about something, and they're just, you know, because there isn't a thing that is, that there is no record. They have a bank account. Money does go into a bank account. There will be deposits. So it it depends on how poorly they are. And if it's too poor, The, the most important thing is everything they're telling us needs to be substantiated with some sort of proof that the income is there. And if not, then we either walk away, or you know, we make some sort of statements that have them guarantee that this is true. So that case, after closing, we could hold this and say, "Hey, there's zero income. You told me there are three thousand, and that that that's kind of a, like warranty." But that doesn't really happen. We're pretty cautious with the income part because that that is extremely important, especially for a small park. Because for a small park, you know, even you know. Three, two to three tenants moving out will be a big chunk. So we do want to make sure the income is, will be verified. And you know, like I said, there are more people keeping better books than you think they do and they, they can substantiate it. Um, and uh, the one thing I will say is that sellers tend to inflate their books no matter what. they, they always do. That's just to be expected. Mm-hmm. But I would say that you know I, I never really look at their books to do my underwriting. I usually do do my own underwriting with regardless what their books say, if their book told me that there's no repairs and maintenance, I don't even look at that. <laughs> uh, you know, there's just not possible or they're hiding something, but you know, at the end of the day, it just, you have to de- look at the situation and analyze it and make a the decision there.
1: Mm, okay. Okay. So another big question that, that Typically comes up when folks are looking at buying a mobile home park, especially if they're doing it on their own, is the debt side of things. You know, finding a lender that will finance, particularly a small to midsize uh, mobile home park. I'd imagine that's a bit more difficult uh, than the larger ones. How do you handle that? And you know, folks talk about seller financing, and you know, some of these and some sellers may be amenable to that. Some others may not. But uh, how do you handle the the debt side of the equation?
0: All right. So uh, for the 24 parks we've purchased, we either purchased through seller financing or full cash. So here's another attractive side of small to medium, small mobile home park is because uh, it's either inexpensive, which is makes it easy to fund, or it it has some sort of seller financing because sellers know that, that it will be a little bit difficult to get the debt part taken care of. So they're more open to get to, to give you seller financing. And, uh so that that makes it attractive on both sides and as we move move to slightly bigger uh parks not it's most those small parks uh, the financing side of it become more uh, become easier but it's still more difficult let's say than you know to to, to a single family home. Uh, but, But I think with our business model, we kind of figure out a way to keep doing deals with cash or seller financing. And that keeps us moving quickly and gets us the great deals. And a lot of people would lower their price for a cash deal. And because they do want to close faster and they do want to see that you have the cash to close. And with the lender involved, sellers actually do not prefer that either. So if you could make a cash deal, that's a win-win because you you benefit a seller, you benefit your investors by getting a lower price. Um, it just make it an overall better deal, though there is a leverage, leverage part of that. But you just have to analyze situation, uh, you know, one by one when it comes up.
1: Okay. So regarding negotiating seller financing, that's a big question mark and um you know, I just I'm curious about terms that are you know, attractive to sellers, and particularly in this market in terms of, you know, rate or payoff time or or whatever. How do you typically structure a seller finance note in a way that a seller of a small to mid-sized mobile home park would be interested in?
0: Right. As you know, any financing terms, it's just math, right? So you want to make sure that there is enough room of spread between the interest rate and the uh, cap rate. For example, if you're buying something at 9% cap rate, 8% cap rate, you want to make sure the um, interest rate is 5% and below. If not, it won't be a good, big, good deal. You know, you definitely don't want something you're buying at three percent cap. You're getting a five percent interest rate. You will be losing money every month. So you want to have at least a three point spread between the cap rate and the interest rate. That way, you are, you know, you will be more likely to, you know, is, you know, historically you you'll be hitting twenty percent with that kind of spread. If not more spread, you need that. So that's the number one thing. And as far as um, other terms, we'll try to see. You know, it's either the terms or the price. If you're giving the seller a pretty attractive price, you can probably start with a lower offer at maybe 20% down. Maybe it, it will go up from there. 20% down, 3% interest rate, 30 30 year amortization, and a 10 year balloon, and then start negotiating from there. One of the first deals we've done. Um, was actually at 3% interest rate for 30-year amortization and 10-year balloon. So very attractive terms. And uh, yeah, but the most important thing is the spread.
1: Interesting. I'm actually kind of surprised by the 10-year balloon. I would have guessed that most sellers probably would lean more to like five or or a shorter timeframe so that they're not betting on you know, you and your team quite as much. You know, they they have a shorter time frame to get out. But are you finding that folks are more willing to go with a longer balloon time?
0: Uh, they're not really happy about longer balloon times, but <laughs> I think that's part of the uh, you know offer. You know, do they want a price reduction? No, they don't. And do they want ten year? The no, they don't. But it's not of what they do or do not want to do. It's what they can make it work, and they do want to. Deal. they do want to make cash out of it and then the deal is attractive to them so they will accept the offer then that's negotiable you know. and then we have several deals that had a 10-year balloon time and uh, for some people it's non-negotiable but, some people, but for us it's important to have longer balloon time because that does give us more time to do the exit plan and uh, to complete the deal so you have to think from the perspective what you want and if the seller absolutely cannot you know, accept it. Um, You know, the, the part of negotiation is to you know try to make everything win-win and try to make all oh, the parties happy uh, through some sort of compromise. And sometimes some things are not comp- you cannot compromise. And if this is one of them, then you need to walk away, or they will walk away.
1: Mm, okay, okay. Now there's always the topic of park-owned homes and, and tenant-owned homes, and I kind of see a, a range of preferences in in that regard, how folks like to invest in mobile home parks. What do you look for as far as acquiring a park? And then, you know, how are you looking at changing that situation? And, and I'll flesh that question out a little bit. So sometimes folks will look for a park with a certain number of park-owned homes and then actually try to sell or finance those off to the the residents so that they you know no longer own the the homes. What do you right. do in that regard?
0: Well, we always prefer tenant owned homes. I think what as as most mobile home park investors would, uh, because of the repairs and maintenance would be you know, just too outrageous for you know old as especially old park-owned homes. So if there are park owned homes, that doesn't mean that there is a deal killer. just mean that the homes um will have to look closely at the home condition. Um, how old they are. Are they, do they have any issues with the deck, the under underpinning and everything else? If so, that may be an insurance problem. And um, we would also try to negotiate with the seller uh, to see if they if it's park-owned, could the seller keep them and the seller become the master tenant. And this th- that way the deal becomes full tenant-owned. So we always try to go after the full tenant-owned homes. And uh, if we do have park-owned homes and they are, you know, not as that old, we may consider them and sell them off, but yeah, the, the primary goes to go after to own home because this is a parking lot business. It's, it's not a rental uh, fixing furnace furnace business. So the further we deviate from the business plan, the further you are from the profit that you, you want to make. So, yeah.
1: Fair enough. Fair enough. I, I wonder to what extent that um, there's the, the blue ocean strategy that we kind of discussed earlier and, you know, Creating a monopoly for yourself, right? So if everybody's looking for parks that are all tenant-owned homes, then you know folks aren't looking for the parks that are a lot of park-owned homes. So, have you thought about that, or is that just too far? That's just
0: no, no. You have. We always have to think far, further. You know, definitely thought about that. And um, you know, there is always going to be some sort of competition, you know, uh, in there. But so you want to make yourself. a a, a monopoly through the the competition for small home small parks regardless of tenant old tenant owned or old park owned is still very small the competition i mean it doesn't so the competition is we're still doing this pollution strategy even though we're going after tenant owned homes and um, so we have to have some sort of standard some we, we do have a strict standard you know criteria we have our parameters and we cannot deviate from that um so if we don't abide by our own policies then you know it wouldn't be a successful acquisition so um i would say the competition is still small so the strategy still works Uh, but like i said you know there there is um, there's got to be a standard, got to be rules. And um, that's something that we have to stand by. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You don't want to go get too unique. That might be yeah, no, might be a bad no. idea.
0: Well, you could. I mean, there are people out there buying just private utilities and that's an area we don't touch. So I think you need to be unique in the sense where you can handle it. <laughs> Fair <laughs> if enough. If you're unique to the point that you can't, you don't have a plan to handle whatever problems that may come with a the uniqueness, then you're not ready for that uniqueness. <laughs> that, that's that that that's uh, what I would say. If you have a system, a plan set up to handle problems that could potentially come with small mobile home parks, then go for it. It's a great niche. If not, you're just picking up trash other people don't that those people don't want.
1: <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. So, I think uh the biggest kind of question that I have about, you know, a, a small mobile home park compared to a large mobile home park really comes down to the scale. When you have a larger property, you have more ability to pay for things like on-site management. And that one in particular uh, with a small mobile home park I wonder about. So how do you handle the actual on-site management of smaller parks in particular?
0: Yeah, right. On-site management. Um, I think a lot of bigger parks would just hire an on-site manager and pay the percentage fee and everything. So for us, The way we do it the system that we develop we we manage everything in-house so we have our own my partner is the main management person who handles all the most of operations stuff so he manages the park but our our so-called onset management would be you know consists of a team that we assembled during due diligence after we purchased the park that consists of city officials uh, park tenants that are good and they that pay on time that could be responsible and local contractors, including electricians and you know plumbers and all the all of the good asset that we have locally. So when emergencies or maintenance come up, we have this team that to call upon to solve the problem. For example, if something. You know, if a pipe bursts, we have the plumber to 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 handle that. So we do have a local team that reports to the headquarters, which is us. So that, that would be our so-called regional office. We don't have an onset manager that we pay percentage for. We manage everything in-house, but we do have the local watch people or the the tenant who lives in the park to watch over things. So yeah, we find that need... more economic effectively. Yeah.
1: Okay. You need still still need someone to Make sure things are running smoothly on site. Right. Yeah,
0: you're not you always ha- want to watch them tightly. It just depends on how you want to execute the plan. Yeah.
1: Okay. So another thing that I've observed with small mom and pop parks is that they're flexible, shall we say, on how they collect rent. Sometimes they'll take cash and you know give a receipt out or you know whatever. How do you handle that? You don't have folks on site, so you probably want electronic. Uh, you know payment or things like that how are you handling the actual payment of of long-run?
0: everything everything is handled um either electronically or pay by check certified check through mail and to our headquarters um here in Georgia so um we, we don't go by door door by door and collect cash or anything like that everything will be standardized they will receive their rent invoice and uh, you know every month they will receive a letter from us and there will be rent due so um everything is pretty pretty professionally handled and they've all paid
1: to us so you're not uh, have you seen difficulty in getting people switched over who are you know used to paying in cash but oh now i have to pay with it by a check or you know that that's kind of a pain has that been a problem
0: well no it hasn't i wouldn't call them a problem um the transition is always difficult for you know for for any kind of operation uh As long as you explain to them what they want, it's like, you know, you have to uh, let them understand, you know, what what sorts of payments are acceptable or not acceptable. Uh, Before COVID happened, uh, when people could meet face to face, um, you know, my business partner and we we usually we we actually went to the park and set up a meet and greet and laid down the ground rules, uh, let them know what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. How do you pay rent? how are your leases handled so you know as long as you explain to them upfront and uh, make everything clear i haven't seen a particular issue related to switching payments you know uh, i think as far as paying that's another issue
1: but switching
0: <laughs> payment that's not not really not not big challenge no
1: interesting okay so um a big you know question in any real estate business that's growing is scaling and you've you've bought a number of parks but you know another way people scale is by it's kind of counter to your strategy. They go and buy, you know, bigger properties, right? But your, your strategy is really focused on the smaller properties and doing a number of them. And that's fine. What do you see like moving forward to, to continue to scale your business and then exit strategies on these parks that you buy? Are you going to try to sell them all off as one portfolio or, you know, how do you plan to scale? And then what are your exit strategies?
0: So there are two parts to our uh, scaling for John's Creek Capital. It's it's one is um, scaling is about adding numbers to your to to your portfolio, right? So there are two ways to do this. Is that we we do want to execute execute our blue ocean strategy per se, and we want to stay competitive. But we want to have this monopoly within a small mobile home park space where. Uh, we are, there are two approaches to this. One is that we are doing things very rapidly. So even with smaller parks, uh, we, with the number of deals that we do, you know, it does add up to a pretty big number. And number two, we are indeed moving to a slightly bigger section of the small mobile home park section, which is still small, but it's not as small as before. So we are moving towards a slightly bigger one as the most, of the smaller parks has either been picked up already by us, or, you know, it's just not that many out there available on the market. So we are moving towards that section. So the two approach, you know, speed and, um, you know, just the a slightly larger number, but we very much stay in this, in this niche. Yeah.
1: Mm, okay. Okay. And then exiting, you're not, are you going to roll them all up and sell them off or what's, I guess, who's your you know target buyer to, to buy them from you on the backside?
0: Yeah. We're actually in the process of selling two mobile home parks. The uh, offers we've had so far uh, have been just um, not institutional buyers. They are mostly um, well, a couple are well, I wouldn't call them institutional buyers. Just you know, bigger investors or another private equity fund or um, just investors who want to you know take up another property while working their full-time job and they have the capital to do so. So, you know, for example, we, we have, um, you know, parks close to each other with proximity close to each other. And we do intent to maybe not the whole 24 park portfolio because we have different um investors in each deal so we do them park by park deal by deal so we might um roll maybe two or three together that's close to each other make it a portfolio of a a region um of a certain state so that is a possibility to add some scale for the buyer. Uh, but for us, you know, definitely not all 24 together that because every, <laughs> I, I, all of them have different acquisition times and they have different exit timeline t- timeline. So they wouldn't, you know, happen at the same time. But I, I think as far as exiting um, you know, that, th- that, that, that would be uh, the the kind of buyer for, for us would be bigger investors or uh, another you know, private equity firm uh, on the smaller side.
1: Um, yeah. Cool. Cool. Nice. All right. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. The first step to growing your wealth is tracking your wealth, income, spending, and everything else about your finances. You can start tracking your wealth for free and get six free months of wealth advisory with personal capital by going to escapingwallstreet.com and using our link. Create your free account today and automate the way you track your money. Personal Capital is my preferred way to track my finances and now we're making that available for listeners. Terms and conditions apply. See the Personal Capital website for details. Once again, to get the offer, go to escapingwallstreet.com and use our link. Back to the show. All right, Charlotte, I've got three questions. I ask every guest on the show, are you ready? Yes. Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education?
0: The best investment I've ever made was, uh, real estate aside, uh, is uh, the effort that I put into uh, learning everything about the American society when I came here uh, when I was 16. Um, as you know, I, I was immigrant. I didn't come with anybody. So the best investment was the uh, adaptation to the society, and that really helped me in doing what, what I'm doing today, which requires a lot of street smarts, which is, requires a lot of language skills, and that's more important than anything, even than the actual education, that's another education of its sort.
1: Nice. Nice. I like that. We had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made?
0: That's a great question. I wouldn't... So I, I for me, you always fail forward. So... Even with a bad investment, you fail, you lose money, you learn a lot of things. So I wouldn't even call that a worse investment. But there are investments where I didn't uh, make as much money as I thought um, I thought I would. That would be my first ever acquisition <laughs> as a fresh college grad uh, out, out of college, my first deal ever. I, I don't call it a bad investment. I learned so much from the deal. Um, it was the, a single family home I got from... Um, Uh, South Atlanta, my first deal ever. And, um, you know, I think the mistake I made was that um, I, it really was not an investment mistake. It was the tenant mistake, which I, this is a golden lesson is you be extremely selective of your tenants because the tenants, they paid maybe two months and then they they couldn't pay anymore. So I lost so much money just because of tenants and uh, going through eviction is no fun for anybody. So that was, um, you know, unfortunately that's that, that's the mistake I made. I didn't vet the tenants properly and, uh, they just never paid. And unfortunately I couldn't afford to let them live there for free. And, um, I had to work with attorney to, 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 get the tenants out, unfortunately. But, uh, but that would, that would be my worst investment. Just a lot of money lost there.
1: Well, better that. to learn that lesson early on. And then
0: now. exactly. Yeah. Very true.
1: My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing?
0: I think the most important lesson um, is business is a team sport. You cannot do everything on your own. When I started Johns Creek Capital, I had me and my business partner. Our team size grew to... Uh, right now, I think we doubled our team size last year, so we have... Uh, for I think five team members now. So it's important to have a team that works with you because everybody has something that they're good at you have to play to your strength. You cannot be good at everything. You have to delegate uh, what you're not good at to those who are good at the thing that you're not good at. So uh, that's the biggest lesson is the team do Awesome. Try to do it by yourself.
1: Nice. I like that. Charlotte, thank you for joining us today, bringing us all this knowledge about small to midsize mobile home park investing. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch with you, if they want to learn more about what you're up to or anything like that, where can they track you down?
0: Yes. So, um, please uh, feel free to reach out to me at uh, johnscreekcapital.com. And that's our website. You can uh, find a, uh, a form, just a simple contact us w- form to fill out. I usually respond within an hour or so. I'm really responsive uh, to our form. So uh, that would be the best way to
1: uh, find me. Nice. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, guys. I appreciate that so, so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcasts ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. I say this every time and I mean it every time. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. If you know anyone who who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. I hope you have a great rest of your day, and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.